0: Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. This week, it's
1: Pancake Week. Barry, are you getting involved? Dude, I have to. After you told me about it just now, I need to get my pancakes on. So, looking forward to that. And also, it's your birthday, Chad, which is really cool.
0: It is my birthday, indeed. Pond, across the
1: pond, with Barry and Chad. So yes, it is episode 16 of Across the Pond, and as we said, it was Chad's birthday last Tuesday, so everyone who's listening, you need to go into the comments section right now and wish him a happy birthday. <laughs> he's getting—he's becoming a very old man, and so he needs all the ego boosts he can get. So please go and comment and give, give Chad a happy birthday wish. Um, Chad, how are you feeling about it,
0: dude? Oh, yeah, no, very, very chuffed. I mean, a lot of people, I think, put too much emphasis on their age. Uh, It's just another (laughs) day. Um, But no, uh, yeah, definitely the years are are ticking by fairly quickly. Um, And yeah, I'll certainly appreciate any comments that come in the form of birthday wishes. Um, Yeah, definitely looking forward to those. Shall we get into our episode, Barry? Let's do it. The Week That Was. So on The Week That Was, Barry, we keep going back, but we have to. The coronavirus uh, really just having its way with the world. Um, basically, eighty thousand infections now, and two and a half thousand deaths. This thing is seriously escalating quite quickly. We saw this past week the uh, Italy, the Venice Carnival had to be cancelled um, because Italy has now got the most confirmed cases in the EU. We're talking about one hundred and fifty cases, with sort of three deaths um, on that side. We got South Korea, um, the second most affected country aside from China, um, they've got 600 infections and six deaths. And uh, now we've also seen Iran Um, and uh, quite drastic action there where Turkey has actually closed the border and banned all travel to and from Iran. Certainly quite a topical one still.
1: Without a doubt. It is the leading news story around the world, and for very good reason, because of the concerns around it becoming a real global pandemic, right? And uh, we've seen a lot of misleading data and lots of debates about how serious is it and how much of it's being um, covered over and how much of it is real and whatnot. So it's still very hard to understand exactly what the reality is. But some of the reports that I've been reading, Chad, have been saying that in some of these places where there's lots of infections, the, the the contagion has been out of this world. So for example, I read one report where it said, on average, every person who's been infected has infected four other people. And wow. so if you do that exponentially and you times up by go to the power of four every single time, that can spread incredibly quickly. And so while we chatted about um, a few weeks ago that it's not as deadly as the SARS virus, it seems to be more contagious, which can be its own kind of struggle and so the battle to contain it the battle to quarantine the battle to try and keep it and try and treat it still rages on and like you say it's starting to spread into europe into the rest of asia and hopefully not to africa but it's 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 got to come soon right you think
0: yeah, I mean I believe there's 13 cases now in the UK and like you said I think the the battle to quarantine um affected individuals is is quite a tough one. I mean I heard of a cruise ship that was stranded in the sea for a couple of weeks um while they were kind of waiting for that uh, incubation period to pass. Obviously that a much easier way to contain that quarantine, um, but once those people are back a lot more tricky.
1: Definitely, and I think one of the key things that makes it very contagious is the fact that the the bacteria or the microbes of the virus can live for up to I think 10 days off a body, so off a host. And so for example, if an infected person puts a hand on a handrail and leaves the, the virus there, it can live for a few days for someone to pick it up afterwards. Wow. So it's not just human to human contact where it's being contagious, it's also just whatever they touch or whatever they cough on or whatever they sneeze on, etc. And so it's, it's seriously concerning. I think we've seen a lot of um, crazy videos and pictures from around the world of them spraying crazy disinfectant everywhere and you've seen the masks on everybody yep. and everyone's doing what they can to stop this thing. But the nature of this world is that we are so globalized that it's very, very hard to quarantine. And so I don't see a way of keeping it to where it is at the moment. I think it's gonna go worldwide. And it's a matter of whether we can develop some sort of antidote, some sort of cure, or some sort of treatment period very, very quickly so that we can keep this at a reasonable kind of level.
0: A really concerning statement, but I think you're right. I think that's the realistic thing that we need to be uh, looking towards. As much as we can try to prevent at the moment, it's already so widespread. Um, We really just need to up those efforts to to get that vaccine or or get that cure at least. Um, Just the fact that you mentioned about it being able to live on surfaces. um, This is the fascinating thing is as these weeks tick on by, this is kind of newish information. I mean, right at the beginning, we, we were kind of still learning how it reacts um still learning you know how a person actually gets affected and from you know episodes of podcasts that i listened way back then um a lot of people believed it was you know you had to cough directly in the face of the person you're infecting um and yeah obviously knowledge is power so now that we know this hopefully we can make a bit of a difference
1: yeah, that's what makes it so difficult, right? Is that these things are so different to each other. So, because these viruses m- mutate over time and they evolve, it's taken a lot of time and effort for people to study this virus and figure out what are the various concerns and what are the characteristics of each virus. And so, new information seems to come out on a daily basis about how this is affecting people, how people are trying to treat it, how people should be quarantined and how they shouldn't. Yep. Um, and so, like you say, knowledge is power. And uh, the best scientists in the world are working on this day and night trying to give us the best chance possible to fight this. And now it actually comes down to like actual behavior from citizens around the world, right? So if you're in one of those affected areas, how do you get the best information that you can to protect yourself and protect your family? Um, and do the best that you can to kind of read what the doctors are saying and then implement it in your own life and do your best to try and quarantine where you are. The problem comes when there's, when there's contradictory information or when yeah. there's information that's hidden or, or misleading, and then it causes the outbreak to, to spread even faster. So we actually all need to pull together as a human race and decide, cool, what is the action plan going forward? What are the kinds of things we need to be doing in these major cities to ensure that we can keep it as small and as, as, as not dangerous as possible?
0: Absolutely. Quite a monumental task that, I mean, I see you You mentioned here that Apple are starting to put in some contingency plans for their next flagship release. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so one of the side effects of this is that most of the goods in the world are supplied from China, if, we be, if we're honest with ourselves. Yeah. Right? When we think about electronics, we think about consumables, we think about um, anything with parts that needs to be mass-produced in factories, a lot of it comes from China and the surrounding areas. So there's been serious concerns about factories having to shut down or slow down production or, or close down completely because of the impact of the coronavirus. And yeah. so what's been happening is that supplies of electronics and parts and various goods and services are not making their way across to the US into Europe and to the rest of the world, and that is putting a huge kind of bottleneck on supply of various things. So one example is the Apple thing. So Apple obviously are looking to launch the iPhone twelve in the next kind of year or so, and they're trying to plan what is the what is the launch sequence going to look like? How are they going to supply all the millions of people who are going to buy the new phone? And if they can't guarantee that supply, it's really bad reputationally to try and launch it. So they are looking at contingency plans, try and move their suppliers outside of China or try and find other ways to, to build and manufacture these new phones in a way that they can supply the huge global demand that there will be when the, when the new iPhone comes out. And if they can't manage to do that, they might have to delay the launch because otherwise they can't fulfill the orders and can't fulfill the demand. So it just shows how this has such a wide-ranging impact, more than just health, right? It, it, it impacts the economy. It impacts the finances. It impacts global trade, especially from China because it's such a big player. Um, And so it's more than just people dying, it's the impact on the economy, on jobs, on the way that goods and services are transferred around the world.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, definitely not something that we can ignore. Um, Let's certainly keep an eye on it and uh, hopefully the World Health Organization will have some good news for us at some point. Um, Moving on to the next one, um, I saw a little snapshot on your Instagram story. Never knew Barry was a boxing fan. Um, But yeah, this past weekend uh, Tyson Fury, beats Deontay Wilder. Um, why don't you tell us about the fight, Barry?
1: Sure thing. So yeah, I'm a big boxing fan, have been for, for a little bit now, and uh, I really enjoy the the spectacle and kind of the huge, huge spectacle these big fights are. Yep. And so this fight is arguably one of the biggest boxing fights in the world. I would say the biggest because it's the heavyweight division. And people love the heavyweight division because you see these punches that are so big <laughs> and so heavy and they can knock people out like nothing else, right? Yep. If you watch some of the, the lighter divisions, they don't really knock each other out very much. It's more they win on decisions and they have like, and so you can have interesting fights over 12 rounds. But the heavyweight division, these guys are ginormous. <laughs> and when they hit, they hit so hard that if you get caught in the wrong in the wrong place or you get one punch that, that connects, it's lights out. And so this was the, the world championship. There was a rematch between Wilder and Fury. Right. In the previous in the previous match, Wilder was all over Fury and knocked him out with a punch. Um and Wilder actually before this fight, before this this last fight now, was undefeated and had a, an incredible record that's almost like Mike Tyson-esque. I think it was four. 41 wins and 40 knockouts and wow. zero losses. Wow. Right? So he has got he's, he's this ginormous man who's, who's ripped. He's got incredible boxing speed and power. And he's known for one-punch knockouts. So it's one of those things where when you're fighting him, you can be as good as you want. But if you make one mistake, just one mistake, and yeah. he catches you in the wrong place, it's game over. That's and that's good. what he's done to 40 opponents in the past. <laughs> And so Tyson Fury is a very, very technical boxer. He's also a giant man, but not as powerful, but very, very technical, and actually the better boxer if you look at it on a technical perspective. And so the question was, would he be able to not make a mistake the whole fight and, and do what he needs to do to win that fight? And so... All the good money, all the, all the bookies were betting on Wilder because he's just been this phenomenon for, for so long. And, and everyone's ta- talking about him as the next Mike Tyson. Right. And Tyson Fury came in and boxed the fight of his life. He was near inch perfect in every in every regard and really put Wilder under pressure. And as we started getting into the fourth and the fifth and the sixth rounds, um, Wilder started to, you can start to see his confidence wane a little bit because yeah. he wasn't managing to connect with this guy. And he wasn't putting the pressure that he normally puts on his opponents. And Fury kept working him, kept working him, kept working him and eventually won the fight in a very, very like, comprehensive fashion. So it was a huge upset for the world of boxing and um, for Deontay Wilder to have his first loss in his career and Tyson Fury to prove himself as this incredible technical boxer. Um, it's huge for the sports of boxing and, and basically a new champion is born.
0: Amazing. I mean, yeah, certainly, like you say, that big spectacle attracting prize money of roughly twenty million pounds—um, quite a big number for for you know one night's work. Obviously, it's a lot. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, from some of the articles that I was reading, um, I believe uh, Furies had quite a difficult past few years um, coming uh, under the load for some things that he said um, and also you know uh, suffering some personal things as well. Um, so yeah to come back uh, to come back from all of that and uh, give a performance like this, um i think quite an achievement um one of the things though in his winning speech uh, that i believe he said which shows quite a bit of humility as well um was you know that Deontay didn't give it up until the end uh, apparently after the sixth round um you know it, it looked like that was going to be it um and he didn't expect him to get up again um so you know certainly nice to see in a sport that is so aggressive um a bit of positive things uh, being said about the opponent as well
1: Without a doubt. And, and these two guys have got such a respect for each other because they respect each other's craft and they know how powerful each other are, right? And uh, there was no animosity here. It was just a really, really good boxing match between two world-class fighters. Um, and so it was great to see that afterwards. I think that they're going to fight many times in the future. Deontay Wilde is definitely not done. Uh, like you said, he, he fights and he fights and he fights no matter what. And so this is going to be a significant like blow to his ego, but he'll be back. Don't worry. And he is a monster. So when he comes back, it's going to be an amazing fight. Everyone's already talking about round three because now they're one-one. So now we need the decider, obviously. Definitely. And so I think that that twi- that the £20 million uh, price is going to go up for round three, and we're in for a, a treat when we get to number three.
0: Insane. Well, it seems like before that third round, uh, Donald Trump wants to bring them into the White House. Never knew he was a fan, but, um, yeah, quite a spectacle, obviously, attracting uh, the likes from across the globe. Um, a lot of people saying, though, that Fury's next potential opponent is Anthony Joshua, obviously another UK-based boxer, who's also uh, did quite a big fight uh, in the in the past few months.
1: Yeah, Anthony Joshua has been moving his way up the ranks quite quickly over the last few years and he's really the next contender for that title so I think that that is the next fight to happen, I think it makes a lot of sense um, to give Anthony Joshua a chance to, to, to go for that belt. Um, he's been he's been scorching Oaks left, right and centre for the last year or so and so he's really been setting the world alight and so that's going to be an amazing fight as well. I think we're very lucky at the moment, the heavyweight division is, is full with amazing fighters and so there's so many good fights on the cards and, and the nature of the division is that one punch knockouts win these fights yeah. so you can be the best boxer in the world but you make that one mistake and you're and, and you're out so it's very exciting to watch you don't know who to put your money on you don't know who to back um, and so looking forward to the, the fights to come in the rest of 2020
0: absolutely let's uh, keep our eyes peeled out for that one something else that happened this past weekend was the six nations um obviously that has been tracking along i believe there's only two rounds left in that um but just a little talking point um on England's victory over Ireland. Um, We obviously know Ireland, massive, massive rugby nation, really. Um, And, you know, having won these six nations in the past, um, we've certainly seen England come a long way. Obviously, we saw them in the World Cup. And uh, it looks like that uh, World Cup, you know, New Zealand beating uh, feat is back again um, with a comprehensive victory of, of 24 to 12. Not sure if you watched the game there, Barry.
1: I didn't see the game, but I saw the score and I, I read a little bit about it. Um, it's, it's it's really good to see. I think the Six Nations has really become a lot more competitive than it used to be in the past, right? In the past, you used to have runaway victories and you you kind of knew the favourites every single year. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, though, all, all of those UK sides are really, really strong and really showing, showing their worth. So it's a fantastic tournament. and Good to see England coming out on top in the end.
0: Absolutely. I think, yeah, to talk to that level of predictability, I mean, we've seen France as well, I believe the only unbeaten side in that tournament so far. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of rounds. Also, in terms of the future of this tournament, I have heard word of South Africa being included uh, as well in the future. I'm not sure whether this is going to happen. I think next year might actually be the one, um, but that's also going to be really cool to see.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I think we've got so many box playing in in the UK already, right? So playing overseas. And so it makes a lot of sense in in some instances to get them into into that tournament. And so it sounds like they might play both the Six Nations and the Rugby Championship here in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, And for me, the more times I can watch the Box, the better. So I'm all for it.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, and uh, I'm sure all of the the aside, obviously there are loads um, equally happy that they can actually go into one of the local stadiums and, and have, a, have a watch. Uh, so that's going to be pretty cool to see. We were talking about Australia and the calls basically on the prime minister um, who was, you know, not acting in uh, the way that the public wanted to and we've kind of seen the same thing happen this side obviously we've spoken the last two weeks about the two storms storm Kiara and storm dennis and uh, yeah boris johnson hasn't appeared in public in 10 days a lot of commentators wondering why he hasn't visited the communities of those who have been severely affected always a tricky situation for the prime minister at the home
1: Without a doubt. I think that public appearances are so important for the, these kind of roles. right? As a president, you kind of are the figurehead, and you're kind of that that brand for the country or brand for the administration. And so it's always strange when there's a long well, – I mean, 10 days not long, but a significant period of time where he's out of the public eye. Yeah. Um, so who knows what's happening behind the scenes? Um, obviously, they're in, in the midst of all the, the negotiations about the, the, the Brexit stuff as well and the, all the trade deals. Um, so I'm, su- I'm assuming there's a lot going on. But uh, like you say, these storms have been quite significant, so you would have thought you'd see them in some instance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, always interesting to see what people think about that. Uh, moving on to the next one, talking about Brexit, um, Google has basically put out a statement that they're going to be moving the data they have on UK users, which is currently being housed in Ireland, over to the US. Really interesting. Obviously, we've seen GDPR the last couple of years. And uh, obviously, as Brexit's happening, uh, they're obviously getting prepared for, for that.
1: Yeah, I think this is quite a big story because um, we, we've chatted about in the past how where the data sits is actually quite important when we look at ethics and we look at privacy and we look at the way that data is handled. So when the data is sitting in Ireland, it's under the, the auspices of the GDPR. And we've chatted about in the past, it's the most conservative kind of uh, protection around data in the, in the yeah. world. The GDPR has really gone out of its way to try and show itself as a protector of individual data. And so now moving it out of Ireland and back to California, which is kind of known as just the Wild West, right? We do, do whatever we want with the data. That's quite worrying for people in the UK themselves who wanted that control over their data. And so the reason that Google gave makes sense, because if a trade deal is not struck between the UK and the EU in a way that protects data privacy, they might lose the ability to even move that data anyway. And so it's almost a preemptive strike to get it out of that jurisdiction quickly before anything happens with the trade deal. Um, And then they can always put it back if a trade deal gets struck that makes sense. So it makes sense from a Google perspective. But from a UK individual, I would be worried if my data is being moved to California, right? Because the GDPR kind of fills me, me with some confidence that my data is being protected quite well and encrypted and all that good stuff. And California is, is a very different different ballgame. Um, and it's a reminder, again, that w- the the servers that host our data, the so-called cloud that we kind of think is just some ethereal thing, is actually a physical location, right? Definitely. So when we talk about the cloud, it's actually servers and computers sitting in warehouses. Yep. And where those warehouses sit is crucially important for politics, for economics, and for the protection of that data as a whole.
0: Absolutely, I mean, I haven't really given this one too much thought, Um, but yeah, as you say, off the bat, quite a worrying one, especially when you consider how much data Google has on you. I believe it's possible, I haven't tried it yet, but I was actually uh, at an event the other day and chatting to a couple of people, um, where you can actually type in Google, what do you know about me, and uh, find out all the facts, um, which I think is pretty insane.
1: It's terrifying. <laughs> it's it's a terrifying thing to do. I, I really encourage everyone to do it because it'll it'll give you a better sense of why this is such a serious topic and why it's so serious to know your privacy and understand how it's being used. Because the amount of data they have is beyond your wildest dreams. And uh, I remember when I found out about it, and I, I did it for myself, I found that there were a number of apps that I was using on my phone that were tracking my location at right. like, all times. And so I saw a list of all the places I'd been in the last wow. week, like to the to the GPS coordinates. Wow. And that was just terrifying to see. So I, I thoroughly encourage everyone to go and do it and just get a sense and realize what kind of data is there about you. And then you can go and make tweaks and changes to your various apps and your Various settings to try and force Google to not have that information.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I definitely need to do that as well, but uh, certainly give it a go as well, uh, the listener, and uh, let us know what what you find. I mean, uh, obviously not the specifics, uh, but let us know if you're surprised by the extent to which uh, they actually know your ins and outs, and uh, yeah, whether that was as terrifying as it was for Barry. Moving on to the next one, we've been uh, tracking the Royals and Harry and Meghan uh, obviously deciding to go financially independent. Now they're kind of settled in Canada, it seems, for a little bit, um, and they've put out a
1: statement. Uh, Barry has done a bit of a scan of the statement what did you find yeah, so before we get to the statement, it's worth talking about the context as to why they made it, right? So we remember they kind of have left the royal family in a way and they've sort of like put away their duties and they want to be financially independent. They want to be on their own two feet and, and all that good stuff. And uh, so there's been a bit of animosity between the the, the, royal, the royal family and, and Harry and Meghan, right? And so they've been trying to figure out what is this new transition period going to look like and okay. how are they going to engage on these various levels and various things? So Harry and Meghan were going to start this thing called Royal, I think it was, yeah, yeah. and that was the brand they were going to use as like the umbrella for all of their charitable work and all of their, their all of their things they're going to do in the next few years. And uh, the royal family came out and said, "Hold on a minute! If you're not if you're not um, one of us, you can't use the word royal." Yeah. Um, and so all the trademarks that they had filed, all the branding they'd done on the website, the Instagram handle, all of that stuff, they now can't use the word royal anymore. Yeah. And so in response to this, they kind of come up with a statement. And so I'll run through a few of the things. The first piece is that um, all of these transitions, all of these changes are gonna happen from spring 2020. That's kind of the date that they've set or the period they've set as a transition period to get all the stuff on, on the way. They made it very clear that Harry still remains sixth in line to the throne. So the okay. order of precedence as to who becomes the King or Queen of England has not changed. Right. So if something crazy goes goes wrong and, and he needs to like take over, he will go back and take over as as, as far as it stands right now. Um they have agreed, Harry and Meghan have agreed to not use the brand Sussex Royal or any of the use or uh, any use of the word royal in any of their things. Um, and this is because of uk government rules that kind of prohibits anyone outside the royal family using those terms and brands and they even went above and beyond that to say that there's no legal reason that outside of the uk they couldn't use those terms but they've decided they're not going to use it anyway so they're going to respect that wish and no matter where it is outside of the uk canada especially they're not going to use the word royal at all Um, and so they haven't come out and said what their new brand is going to be. We'll have to wait and see about that. Um, but they're bowing to pressure from the royal family in that sense. And then the last thing, which I thought was quite interesting, was they, they made it very clear that they don't plan to start a foundation themselves, but instead plan to develop a new way to affect change and to complement efforts already being made by various foundations on a global basis. And I actually like this a lot because there are so many NPOs, there are so many foundations and causes and whatnot that are trying to do good in the world, and that's fantastic because you get these inspiring people who want to start something themselves and they want to go and make it happen. But what I find sometimes is that then you spray and pray and you've got resources being spread across 100,000 different options and causes and foundations, and you wonder if some of those were consolidated and given more resources, could they do more good? rather than competing with a 100 other foundations that do exactly the same thing for the same cause. So Harry and Megan have decided to, to, rather than start their own thing with their own name, they're going to go and support existing foundations which are doing great work already. And so this makes a lot of sense for me, and I, and I want to see more of this. I want to see more consolidation so that bigger organizations and bigger MPOs can have a bigger impact rather than trying to compete for the same donation dollars. I don't know what you think, Chad.
0: Yeah, definitely that definitely makes sense to me as well. I mean, if the core purpose is not for profit, the core purpose is to effect change in communities. Um why do they need to be separate entities doing the same thing? Um I completely agree with you there. Um in terms of just the the general statement and uh, you know this transition phase, there was obviously a lot of uncertainty um when they announced that they were going to become financially independent. At least now we now we're able to see what what this is actually going to look like. Um I find it interesting that they include in their statement that uh, the name royal isn't specifically prohibited elsewhere in the world. Although, as you've said, they've used it um, in the context of, we're going to respect the wishes of the family, I find it really inter- interesting that they set up a base for which they could have actually appealed that. Um, and a lot of people are actually saying as well that they took a bit of a stab at some of the not-so-senior royals, um, Beatrice and Eugenie. These are royals who are able to have jobs, um, but are also able to undertake royal assignments. Um, So although there's a lot of cooperation coming about, I do sense a bit of an undertone um, of uh, hostility there, don't you think?
1: I think so too. And and when I read it, I get the sense that lawyers have got all their fingers around these statements, right? It feels like lawyers have been involved to try and put them in a position where they can act differently in the future. And so as, uh, we've, we've chatted about British poshness in the past as how yeah. this passive-aggressive nature is how people deal with conflict, and so I can, I can almost feel that passive-aggression passive in these statements going back and forth between the royal family and between Harry yeah. and Meghan themselves. And so uh, yeah, I I think that the media is running away with this and, and loving every minute of it because there's drama and they can talk about the various drama. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was reading one piece talking all about how they've analyzed the statement and they can spot the Americanisms in it, which <laughs> means that Meghan wrote it and not Harry and yada, yada, yada. Oh, man. And so the British press are loving it. They're running away with it. Um, but I, I definitely do sense some sort of animosity and some yeah. sort of conflict there. As, as to be expected, right? This is kind of an sure. unprecedented move. And uh, obviously, it's, it's, it's quite, I don't think it was good for the royal family. So it's, it's interesting to see what's going to happen going forward and whether they're going to stick to the kind of the representations they've made right now.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's keep our eyes peeled for that one. Moving on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting.
1: All right. So the first thing on stuff I found interesting this week is about computer keyboards or keyboards in general. And I know this is not a super sexy topic, but I found it very, very interesting. <laughs> so if, you look, if, if you're sitting in front of a keyboard right now and you look down at your keyboard, what you'll see on the top of the letters is something called QWERTY. So Q-W-E-R-T-Y, right? Yep. And that is kind of the shorthand for the keyboard configuration that we have across the world. And what I mean by that is where are the letters placed on a keyboard? Right, so if you think about a keyboard, you could put the letters anywhere you want, right? But there's been this standard that's been that's been built over the years because y- you want to be able to learn to type on one keyboard and then transfer that to another keyboard. Yeah. you don't have to relearn every single time. And so the QWERTY keyboard has kind of become the world standard. And so I was reading a bit about it and why it's become the world standard was harks all the way back to typewriters, which was way before our time, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> but but typewriters back in the day were like the the, the precursors to keyboards, obviously. Yeah. And why the QWERTY keyboard came into being was that these typewriters would jam often. So if you push the same key too often or keys very close to each other too often, it would jam the whole machine and the machine would stop working. you have to fix the machine and retype <laughs> what you had typed, right? So as typists and secretaries and whatnot got faster and faster and faster at typing, they jammed the keyboard more and more. So the keyboard manufacturers had to fight this, right? So what they did was they developed this QWERTY keyboard, which basically puts the kind of letters that are commonly used together as far apart as possible. And what that means is that it minimizes the amount of jams from these typewriters. So it made all the sense in the world, and at that time it slowed the typist down because it's a less efficient way of typing, right? The kind of way the keyboards are set out. So that's all very well and good, and that kind of makes sense. Then we move from typewriters to the computer generation, and all of a sudden we're using keyboards that don't jam, right? keyboards that are absolutely fine, there's, there's no issues with that. But we keep the same QWERTY layout just because of, I don't know if it's laziness or just kind of that's how we grew up and that's how we learnt it. And so we are stuck with an inefficient use of the keyboard. And for today, like so much of typing is, I mean, typing is everywhere. Typing is super important around the world, and the speed of typing really dictates a lot of information transfer. And so the fact that we are using a very inefficient mode of our keyboard, <laughs> simply because it's just how, the way it was, and that's the status quo, I found that fascinating. It's one of those examples of history that just repeats itself, and we haven't actually ad- adjusted or adapted to the fact that we're not using typewriters anymore.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. It's something I haven't thought about. I mean, we've spoken about keyboards actually a surprising amount of time on this podcast <laughs> already. Um, I mean, I talk about, you know, the Apple MacBook and the the butterfly keyboard, which which did jam, um, but I completely get where <laughs> you're coming from, Barry. Um, we also spoken about keyboards that are in the future going to project uh, something onto surfaces or even not project, but actually pick up movement um, using a camera. Um, and, yeah, we haven't actually spoken about the the basis upon which Keyboards have been designed, and I find this fascinating. Um, it's one of those where we really do need to stop and, and sort of ask the question: um, Is it possible to to change this? What is the period that we're going to have to live with a bit of change? Um, and you know, for the for the sake of civilization, should we just suck it up and do it? I mean, a lot of the times uh, we're typing now on screens, screens that would be able to dynamically change. Um, and yeah, I certainly, I certainly think if there is another more efficient manner. We should surely be doing that. Um, I never thought QWERTY was particularly slow. Um, Are you at that kind of lightning fast speeds that uh, you find QWERTY slows you down? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm definitely not but but maybe it could be faster right so so Chad I am very happy to tell you I've got the answer to your problem is there <laughs> is a more efficient keyboard layout Amazing. Um, because we can because we can do computer simulations on these things the, the super nerds have developed a new layout and they call <laughs> it the Dvorak so it's D V O R A K that's kind wow. of the shorthand and um, for a lot of computer scientists and people who code a lot, they like the Dvorak method and they kind of re-engineer their keyboard so they'll take the keys off and re-engineer <laughs> them to wow. be in this new layout and that apparently gives them some sort of advantage when it comes to speed. So yeah. it's not even about like, it's, it's, it's simply just making it more efficient for your hands to travel across the keyboard. You're still going to be slow if you're slow right? It, it doesn't make you automatically <laughs> faster but it gives you a better chance of getting faster and it gives you a better chance of being more efficient and making less mistakes because th- the letters. Are, are laid out in a way that matches the English language and how we use the English language. So, for all the super nerds out there, the Dvorak uh, keyboard l- configuration is out there. Um, and the question of whether it's ever going to become mainstream, I don't know. It's going to take a huge amount of like friction yeah. to get over that change, um, and to change the keyboard layouts across the world is is, is a monumental task. But it seems, for, for me, it seems important because like it's the primary means of, of inputting and and getting information right Definitely. and so why wouldn't we want to make it as efficient as possible why are we sticking to this old system for for no reason other than history
0: yeah absolutely fascinating um, we'll have to soon see i mean like you said currently people are you know buying a third party configured type keyboards to, to get around this. And maybe that's not a bad way for us to edge in the right direction. Um, like we've seen with things in the past, if we put enough pressure on manufacturers, um, ultimately we drive the need. Um, so I think it's really about getting that messaging out there, um, getting a couple of sort of demos out there. Um, and yeah, certainly there's going to be a lot of mental work for us to make that shift. Not going to be quite easy. Um, but I think we can do it. So, uh, we probably should moving on to the next one, Barry, uh, I looked at the picture that, uh, for, from this link that you inserted, and uh, I can't believe it. Uh, following the Cybertruck, this one certainly making a much bigger statement.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I saw this picture, and I could not put it on the notes because <laughs> it is absolutely wild. <laughs> so basically what the picture is, so, so, so everyone who's listening, you need to go and look this up. It's basically the most powerful fire engine in the world. Random, I know. I know you didn't think you wanted to know this, <laughs> but when you see this picture, you'll realize how crazy it is. Chad, do you want to try and describe the picture to people? Someone who's listening, like, what does it look like to you? This fire truck?
0: Oh man, this looks like something out of uh, some video game. It it, it is essentially. <laughs> let, let's kind of work from the bottom up. It is essentially yeah. a, a full on proper war tank. Um, at the bottom to its core Um, but where there would be a little bit of a cockpit on a normal war tank, uh, you can kind of double, triple that uh, level up and you've got this amazing massive base for these two kind of rocket launcher type um, (laughs) things Um, and sort of on top of those, there's almost like eyelashes on top of this this truck as well, not sure what those are all for Um, but yeah, certainly very intrigued by this thing
1: yeah, exactly. So basically, it's like two rocket launchers on top of an army tank. that instead of shooting like <laughs> rocket fuel, they <laughs> shoot water, right? And so no. this, this this it is a fire truck, even though it looks like some sort of crazy sci-fi weapon. Um, and what the fire truck is used to do is it used to put out oil well fires, right? So I, I found it quite amusing when I was reading about it that if you were to actually try and use this in a normal situation in a building or in an urban area, it actually might do more damage <laughs> to the buildings than the actual fire because wow. of how powerful this thing is, right? Um, And to give you some perspective, it it shoots out 832 litres of water per second.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Per second. (laughs) So the amount of power behind this water is crazy. And so it, yeah it destroys buildings by itself. And basically what it's used for is, obviously there's very few of them in the world, and I think there's only about six or seven in the world. And what it's used for is if there's an oil well that's exploded or some sort of oil-based fire, um, and those fires are raging and they're very, very difficult to put out, if not impossible, without this kind of equipment. Then you bring in this fire truck and you shoot like crazy amounts of water at this, at this oil fire to try and try and shut it down. So it's a very, very specialized piece of equipment that was actually invented by accident. So we're chatting about it in like a military context, and that's exactly where it came from. It was a, right. it was a kind of a mistaken invention from a military context that is now being used to put out oil fires. Um and so it's a kind of picture that reminds you that there's a tool for everything, right? And the, the kind of scale of engineering in some of these things is absolutely crazy.
0: Absolutely. I mean the only thing that I thinking in terms of a question is if we if we think of the the sort of traditional fire truck design um, there's space for quite a big water tank where is that water tank there's it looks to be a, a tiny one at the back but uh, that fails in comparison to the size of the actual rocket launches where does this water come from <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I I feel you, and I don't know the answer. My my, my best guess would be you attach a, wa- a huge water tank to this thing. I right. don't know, um, but as it stands right now, yeah, you, you like I didn't think about that before. Like, where does the water actually come from, and how much water do you need to get up through those pipes in order to shoot out? 600, 800 and something liters per second. Um, and so it really is a crazy piece of machinery. And I, I just had a, a good chuckle when I saw it because it's a it's a weird <laughs> machine.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely indeed. And uh, I mean, on to our next topic. Um, basically, this one is one that the designers of that fire truck um, are, are clearly on the right side of. Um, so <laughs> basically, uh, there's been a little stat come out that just one in three adults is doing the job that they dreamed of as a child. Um, now, I mean, if we... Think Think of what we dreamed of doing as children um i think a lot of the time these were kind of remote possibilities so i'm quite surprised that that number is as high as it is uh in fact, at all. Um, but I mean, even if we talk about something that we dream of doing today in our, our current day self, this stat further adds that almost half of workers regret not chasing their dream. Um, so, your current day dream, whatever that is, um, you know, almost half of the population is in regret for not chasing that. This, again, one of those discussions on practicality versus actual enjoyment.
1: I mean without a doubt. I mean, Chad, for example, my dream was always to design the biggest fire truck in the world. <laughs> and I didn't follow that dream. And look what I could have happened if I did follow that dream. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a it's a serious concern. I think a lot of the mental health struggles we've chatted about in the past also come down to this, right? Where people spending a large amount of time at work and a large portion of their life dedicated to work and it's something that they don't actually either don't enjoy completely or it's not their number one passion. And uh, it's, it's that practicality that comes into play, right? Sometimes like, the, ki- the kinds of dreams people have are one in a million things or once in a generation things. If right? you want to be a rock star or a sportsman or a scientist or an like, these, these, or astronaut or those kinds of dreams, it's very, very difficult to do. Yeah. And often our dreams don't match up with our skills, right, or our talents. So I can dream as much as I want that I want to be the next LeBron James, but because I'm not seven <laughs> feet tall, I've got no shot, no matter yeah. how good I am, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's, I think it's kind of a, a part of growing up is is getting from that childhood dream into like a more realistic adult dream. And are you willing to chase that adult dream? Um, and so maybe the childhood dream doesn't make sense, but when you, when you get more information, you get to know yourself a bit better, you get a better sense of what the world's about and what's actually realistic. Are you? Do you have the guts to chase something that's uncertain, or to chase something that is difficult, and uh, or do you t- kind of take the stable path because it's easier and it's safer and it's it, it's less risky? Um, and I, for one, believe that more people need to be chasing that uncertain path. Um, I'm trying to do it myself, um, and it's hard. It's incredibly difficult because you go through these ups and downs, and you don't know what you're doing, and your friends yep. ask you what you're trying to do, and you, it's hard to explain sometimes. <laughs> um, but that is, for me, where f- joy and fulfillment comes from. And if we're not wanting to chase those, I think we're going to regret it later in life.
0: Definitely. I mean, it makes sense. It makes complete sense. Um, if you're on your deathbed looking back, and, uh, you know, you were everyone is always at a stage where there's you know a left or a right choice and and you kind of have to pick the one the majority of the time the bulk of people pick the safe and as you say reliable option um but this is the other thing is is sometimes you don't have to make that call in such a binary way um why don't you start your passion on the side i mean we're doing a, a podcast once a week it takes a Quite, quite a bit of time to, to you know, set it all up to, to get through the full edit. Um, but I have been able to do it with a full time job. Um, and so that's kind of the dialogue I think that we need to be having is, is your dream realistic, like you said, maybe double in it. Start it on the side um, and uh, see if it if it gains traction. If it does, fantastic. If it doesn't, at least you've still got your security and your, your safety net. Um, but yeah, certainly an interesting stat and uh, one that I thought was definitely worth mentioning on this side. Another little interesting stat that I saw, um, especially when you consider the property crisis in so many countries, London being one of them, um, is that Berlin has chosen to freeze rents on one and a half million flats for five years years um, they have essentially just gone on a revolt to stop prices rising um, because you know this has been one of the deterring factors for, for people going into some of these big cities and often means they have to live quite further out and uh, when you actually add in the commute costs for some of these uh, out-of-city distances you actually may as well be staying dead in the center quite a bold move for me and uh, landlords obviously not too happy about this one.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up, Chad, because I remember I was in Berlin about three years ago and I went for a for a conference/slash workshop with BMW there in Berlin. And so many of the conversations that I had were talking about the fact that Berlin is the cheapest place to stay out of the major European cities. So if okay. you're comparing it to London, to Paris, to the various other major European cities, Berlin is the most affordable for someone coming in to live. And it's it's l- through policies like this, which attempt to try and make the city livable and not let the prices get out of hand like it has done across the world, Tokyo, yeah. San Francisco, London, etc. And what that does hopefully, and what Berlin hopes it does and Germany hopes it does, is it attracts young people who want to go and innovate and want to go and do something in the world they'll go to berlin because they can afford to live there and they can live as you say close by the city center where all the smart people are where all the things are happening and they can really make a difference and so the culture of entrepreneurship in berlin i found was amazing because you got people there who don't have crazy amounts of money behind their name it's not like self-selecting for rich people it's selecting people who have a dream have an idea have a startup they want to start have something they want to do in the city. And when they look at the options in Europe, Berlin is is the number one choice because they can have so much more runway there. And so while the landlords are probably not happy and, and you wonder what it does for city planning and for the value of Berlin as a city, for entrepreneurship and for startups and for young people, it really is amazing because it gives them an alternative to living in Paris or into London or et cetera, et cetera.
0: Absolutely, I mean I think, like you said, a move that some of the other big cities need to take note on, um, obviously in, in London there is affordable housing and uh, within every new development there's a certain proportion of that development that needs to be set aside for affordable housing, but uh, is affordable housing even affordable? Um, You know, for it's really, really insanely expensive living in London um, and I suppose the only other thing is to improve the transport links uh, from some of the outside areas. So so we've certainly seen in the last couple of weeks a little bit more talk on HS2, uh, which is the Crossrail project. Um, and yeah, that a project that was supposed to be completed, I think last year even, um, and is significantly delayed. Um, but one of those really, really quick railway that can take you from really far out on the east side of London all the way to outside on the west side. Um, and so I think it's investments like these that really need to come into play and quickly.
1: Definitely. I think I think London is having that struggle, like you say. It's, it's not it's not just the housing, it's it's all the cost of living there. It's the food, it's the transport, it's the kind of everything that comes into play if you want to try and live in London. And that's where Berlin is getting it right. Like I, I think Berlin is a very, very underrated city when you think about it. It's very well located, it's got amazing governance and, and it's cheap well not not cheap if you think about it from a South African perspective, <laughs> but cheap in a European context, right? Yeah. And uh, so I think a lot of these big cities are having to deal with this fact now. How things are being gentrified and, and the prices are going up and up and up and up. How do you ensure a livable kind of situation for people who aren't, aren't just wealthy? How do you make sure there's enough diversity in class, in, in race, in background, in, in wealth to ensure you have a diverse society that really is a cultural melting pot rather than just like, privileging the ones that have the money?
0: Definitely. Uh, that's, I mean, definitely the way for us to make some progress. Let's move on to the next segment. Looking ahead. So it seems like the last few weeks we've got mini medical degrees because um, we've just been talking <laughs> about medical things and uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but let's look ahead, Barry. Uh, talk me through this medical journey.
1: Yeah, so this, uh, this technology we're going to chat about is, is something I'm very excited about. And I've been reading about it for the last couple of years. And uh, it's really starting to come into its own. And that's a technology called CRISPR, which is an acronym, C-R-I-S-P-R. And what CRISPR is, is, it's the world's first gene editing technology, right? So if you think about what a gene is, a gene carries your DNA, so a gene is something you inherit from your parents. And basically, there are genes inside of you that give you all the various characteristics. So so like what you look like, um, how smart you are, like, like various bits and pieces that kind of determine what your quality of life is going to be. Um, if you h- inherit diseases, if you kind of are going to have a healthy life, etc. And there's various genetic markers that kind of give you that baseline from, from when you're born. And then throughout your life, you obviously your behavior then impacts on those and kind of determines what your life's going to look like. And previously, this was completely beyond the realm of science. Like We kind of we, we, we didn't really know much about it. And over the last 10 years, we've started to decode the genes, to so start to look at, cool, what is the actual code in each of the gene, and what does it mean? Trying to understand what kind of leads to certain diseases, what leads to certain problems in, in the human body. And in the last, I would say, four or five years, as CRISPR technology has come into play, and scientists under a microscope have been able to then go into the genes themselves and snip pieces out, so either removing pieces completely, adding in new pieces of genes, or editing the actual pieces themselves. And what this does is it's crazy. It gives you the opportunity to then edit the human body, basically, and, and okay. change the way the human body functions. It is a crazy sci-fi idea that's becoming real very, very fast, right? And so we're going to leave the China discussion aside because there's huge concerns about what China's going to do with this. Um, but for, for the most of the Western world, they are now using this CRISPR technology to try and test new cures and new ways to cure diseases. And so I saw this news story, I thought we should talk about it. Um, there's been a brand new study coming out of the University of Illinois. And what they've managed to do is manage to slow down a disease called ALS in mice, right? So ALS is a, is a terrible disease. It's debilitating, it's fatal, it's a neurological disease that impacts a lot of humans around the world. And there are very few treatment options. It's one of those diseases where you manage it as best you can, but ultimately there's no real cure for it. And what these guys at the University of Illinois have, have shown is that they can deactivate a gene that is, re- that is relevant for, for ALS, and by deactivating in mice, they've seen a marked slowdown in the progress of the disease. So giving the mice a lot more of healthy life before the, the disease takes over. So it's an example of how this gene editing can be used going forward. And if this kind of potential comes into play, Chad, what can happen is that by editing those genes, you then decrease the amount of hereditary disease you're going to give to your, your offspring. Yep. So if we could try and fix it at one generation, it can have huge exponential effects for future generations by maybe removing that disease completely from, from, the, from the pool. Um, so I think it's fascinating.
0: Absolutely. I've seen CRISPR um, in the past few weeks. I know we spoke about a documentary series on Netflix, and this was one of them, actually. Um, and I think, like you said, uh, there's there's certainly some, some benefits here. Um, but the question is always ethics when it comes to these kinds of things, because as the human species, um, you know, aside from just removing ailments and, uh, you know, removing genes that are subject to some diseases, um, sort of the next step is to try and perfect some other pieces of us. And that's always the real tricky ethical question to ask. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's certainly going to be something to watch in the next couple of years. We haven't really seen any um, cases of this actually happening yet. I don't even know if it's legal um, in, in the human species as yet, um, but certainly an area to watch.
1: Yeah, and, and that's how I came into this discussion, was through the ethical pathway. So chatting about legality, in the Western world, a lot of governments have kind of banned the use of it in humans for now. Okay. And so all of the tracking, all the testing is being done in animals, to try and get a sense of what we're doing. But as always, China has, has gone a different route, and there are serious rumors that China are using it on embryos, on human embryos. Wow. Which, if true, would be a serious, serious breach of a lot of international standards around ethics. Um, like you say, this is a huge deal to be messing around with genetic compounds inside a human body. And uh, so while there's no proof yet, there's been serious rumors about China and their, their mis- misgivings in this sense... Um, But for the moment, we don't know what we're doing yet. right? This is brand, brand new. We're still trying to figure it out. And a lot of these things, they seem like silver bullets. They seem like magic. Imagine we take out the gene for AIDS or the gene for cancer, whatever the story is. What we don't know is by taking out that gene, what are the side effects? right? What do we then create or what do we then develop in that human being? Um, genes are not simply like A, B, C equals cancer. It doesn't work like that. All of these I things think. are interrelated and interdependent, and they're so difficult to understand what they do in the human body. So we're very far away from human trials um, in the Western world and certainly in the ethical world, um, but the, the technology is so powerful that I'm, that I'm very sure there's scientists around the world who are trying to figure it out in a human setting, and that terrifies me.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. As exciting as it is that we might be able to, as you say, remove some of these uh ailments And those kind of things, it is absolutely terrifying. I mean, like you say, a mouse is not a human, and so all of those kind of side effects that we may face um, are impossible to test. And uh, I mean, how are we going to actually, how are we going to actually do this? Um, so I mean, it's I, I don't know how this one's going to actually move forward, especially when it's uh, rightfully unlawful. Um, but at the same time, how do these trials go on? Um, you know, with the view of of going to humans, um, especially when you know we're actually going to DNA level something that we we don't typically do you know we, we do all of these trials um, where we, you know we, we kind of have injections where we have pills we have all those kinds of things that maybe mask a certain something but now when we're actually going to the core and we're actually editing DNA that's something completely different um, and uh, you're yeah, really a, a tricky one to see how this one's actually going to move forward at all but certainly really scary moving on to our next segment develop and grow So moving on to develop and grow, this one's actually not too long this week, but the first one, really exciting. I actually spent my morning uh, looking through some of the old clips of uh, my YouTube covers and uh, one of them with Barry and, you know, I was kind of wondering about the the singing world. Uh, This one, quite an exciting one. I'm not going to spoil it. Barry, you share the news.
1: Sure, sure. So yeah, like we have been chatting about Chad offline, I've been looking for ways to bring music back into my life and I really miss singing and so... Through my good friend, Natalie. So thank you, Natalie, for, for getting me into this. Um, I, I've finally joined a choir and I've joined a choir awesome. that's quite a prominent choir here in Johannesburg called the Johannesburg Symphony Choir. Um, and I'm very, very excited about it. It's, it's, it's one of the top choirs in, in, in the country even. And uh, so I was very nervous when I auditioned and it was a very, very tough audition because I haven't sung properly in, in a long time. Like I've, th- I've done covers and whatnot, but, you, but it's not as like serious and intense as these kind of auditions. Definitely. And so I went to an audition for the symphony choir and somehow they let me in. So that's amazing. <laughs> um, and so I'm very excited. I've been to about three or four rehearsals. We are preparing for our first concerts um, in, on Good Friday, coming in, in mid-April. Amazing. Um, and so it's really been a fantastic experience for me to, to practice really, really difficult Singing, um, f- for those who don't know, symphony choirs don't sing like Justin Bieber or the popular <laughs> music, right? They do. They sing a lot of classical music and and uh, the classics from from a long time ago and these intense, difficult pieces. And so for me, it's an opportunity to test myself and to try and get my singing a bit better and also to grow an appreciation for some of this music. Yeah. Classical music yeah. is something I've always wanted to get into because I think there's so much beauty there and there's so much amazing stuff in classical music. But I've never really had an opportunity to really dig in and kind of be a bit nerdy about and try and get, understand why do people appreciate this? Why is Mozart good? or Why is Beethoven good? Yeah. And so hopefully this experience is going to give me the chance to grow this appreciation and to improve myself. So I'm very excited, Chad.
0: That's absolutely amazing news and I'm really excited to hear about it. Um, really keen to hear about all the actual performances and, and how those track on. When I did those covers with Barry, it was very, very clear that he was a, a tenor. Um, you know, I and my musical production days, um, certainly in my high school, um, was always a baritone. And so when you kind of see that sort of range that Barry has, um, I'm really glad it's being put to good use now. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll certainly see how that how that tracks on. Um, I've always been intrigued by by these types of choirs um, and at, at how difficult really it is um, to take a different line. Obviously as the tenor, sometimes you'll be taking the lead line uh, in terms of the lead melodic line, but uh, when it comes to those harmonizing pieces, really tricky to make sure you stay on track.
1: Definitely, and, and this kind of choir chat, a lot of times it's eight part harmony, wow. which is absolute chaos, right? Because there's there's basically four voice parts, and then in each voice part, there's is a first tenor and a second tenor, for example. Wow. And so in a lot of cases in these in these intense classical pieces, you've got eight parts going at simultaneously on different harmonies and different rhythms. So for example, this, this current one we're doing is, is a, a long piece by Rossini, which is a beautiful piece of music, but the rhythms kind of overlap and <laughs> conflict with each other. Wow. And so it's, it takes so much concentration for me to sit there and try and follow what I'm doing because I'm very rusty about reading sheet music. <laughs> and uh, and so it's, it's taking a lot of concentration to understand, cool, where am I in the in the piece? How do I keep up? And how do I make sure I'm singing the right note at the right time? Um, and so it's been a fantastic challenge for me. And I'm it's, it's starting to come back slowly. All, all of that reading sheet music and all the good stuff that I used to be able to do, it's coming back slowly. And so I'm really enjoying it. Um, and it's given me a new appreciation for how difficult choral singing can be when you're singing in these like major classical pieces.
0: Absolutely, that sounds insane. Uh, so yeah, good luck with that. That sounds really insane. In terms of that sheet music, um, I mean, are, are you kind of going back to the keyboard to follow those along? Um, because I think unless you've got pitch perfect, which is a really, really tricky thing to master, um, quite hard to just follow those by reading the sheet music.
1: Yeah, it is very tough, but that is unfortunately what you have to be able to do in this kind of choir. So sight wow. reading is kind of a pre- prerequisite. So for example, in my audition, I was given a piece of music that I'd never seen before, and I had to sing it in front of the, the, the choir director immediately and learn how to sight read. So so I, I used to be able to wow. sight read when I used to sing in choirs back in the day, but I've got very, very rusty at it. And so what happens is you sight read, you're given a note, so you're given the pitch you need to start right. at. So right. luckily you don't have to be pitch perfect because otherwise cool. I wouldn't be able to do it. But you're, <laughs> give, you're given the pitch to start and you, you understand what key it's in, and then you've got to sight read as it goes on. And so what I found most amazing, my first rehearsal, we sat down and we got given a new piece of music, and we kind of just started like playing it like he just started playing and everyone started singing in four part harmony and I was wow. like what is going on <laughs> have you guys been practicing without me um, and it's like no these guys are so good they can just pick up a sheet of music and just sing it immediately and so obviously there are mistakes and whatnot, but the ability to sight read and, and go from the beginning means that even in the first rehearsal it sounded insane And so that's what makes me so excited about it, is that my sight readings get better and better and better. And ideally, you get to a stage where you can pick up any sheet of music, get given the key, and you're able to sing a a sort of a version of it. Um, And then you tweak and you you fine tune and you make it good from there.
0: That is absolutely amazing that's super inspiring i'm uh, I'm quite keen to actually start learning a bit more of the, the musical theory and stuff um, when hearing about that because I've always kind of just been on the on the other side on the simple side where you kind of learn stuff on YouTube and you're able to replay something without um, you know being able to actually genuinely interact with it uh, on the spot and so that's that's really inspiring and I'm keen to get back into it and, and do some learning in that space
1: without a doubt and one more thing I wanted to add about the learning is that what's really cool is that I'm like I'm, I think I'm the youngest person there, and awesome. uh, but, but I'm like I'm a good twenty years underneath the average age, wow. um, which is quite a quite a strange experience. Um, and, but what it means is I get to learn from people who've been in this choir for for twenty something years. The guy next to me, for example, has been in the Johannesburg Symphony Choir for twenty four years now, wow. and so he knows this thing backwards and he understands exactly how this works. And so I'm just looking forward to learning as much as I can from people who've been there for a long, long time and have a lot of experience. Um, and it's something I'm very excited. About as you could hear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, uh, you know, you kind of didn't pick to go the Toastmasters route. I thought you had too much in your plate, but uh, you know, you kind of just wanted to add a, a little something else on the side. Um, so that's cool to see indeed. Uh, moving on to the next topic, uh, definitely not as exciting as the previous, um, but it was really just this, uh, this call for, for clutter that we live in in our lives. Now, I subscribe to Barry's blog, um, and he he mentioned you know just about about. Curation and uh, and the amount of media that just flows past our faces every single day, every single minute, um and uh, and really just this call for us to actually narrow down the things that actually matter most to us, um and uh, kind of slow it down a little bit, um so you know I certainly started this week by um going through my emails and and looking at the ones that I actually want to see, um hitting unsubscribe. There's nothing wrong with doing that, um hitting unsubscribe and uh, you know like we've spoken about uh, in in previous times, um, kind of try and think more specifically and more purposefully about what it is you want to consume, when you want to consume it, rather than just being this open sponge um, with which anyone can throw anything at you and you're expected to consume it. Don't you think this is quite an important one in today's uh, day and age?
1: I think it's crucial and uh, I, I've written about it and, and talked about it in the past that the kind of focus that we have is our most important resource, like your attention is your most important resource and uh, digital clutter is very pernicious in today's day and age because it's not like physical clutter, if, you're, if your desk is full of stuff and you can see it's like messy and, and whatnot and yeah. it, it's a trigger in your head to understand, cool, I, I can clear this up and, and feel better about it so I can make sure I'm more organized or whatever the story is, so physical clutter is easier to deal with than digital clutter because it it doesn't seem wrong to have a 1,000 emails sitting in your inbox because it doesn't take up any space. It doesn't yep. worry you. But the problem is your actual attention, your focus, is being spread across a 1,000 different things. And so it's very important for us to think carefully about what information we consume on a daily basis and is that serving our interests. So, for example, there's a lot of things you might sign up for an email newsletter for some reason for for now, but three years down the line, you're still receiving those emails even though you're not Definitely. getting any more value from them anymore. And so it's important to do like a regular kind of checkup on your stuff. And like like you say, Chad, go through your various subscriptions and take away all the stuff that doesn't add value. There's no need to be subscribed to things that don't add value. Even if it's your friend's blog, even if it's your friend's (laughs) stuff, it doesn't matter, right? Only subscribe to the things that are actually adding value to your life and you'll have a much, much more clearer mind and you'll be able to do the important things more so than the urgent things.
0: I mean, definitely. Um, so I was certainly speaking on the digital space, but having moved to a new flat as well in the past couple of weeks, the physical side becoming quite apparent as well. Um, and it's, it's weird that we wait for a type of move where we now have a limited amount of space and have, have to actually make a considerate decision on what it is that we're keeping and what, what we need, what we don't need, and uh, why we can't actually do that um, on a regular basis, kind of like, you know, your typical spring clean. We actually pick things out, decide how long you've had it, how frequently you use it. um, And uh, like you say, whether it adds value. And I think that kind of as a blanket rule for everything we own and for everything we consume on the other side um, is an important one. And like you said, it's easy enough to look at things on your desk. Um, But for me, I might be a little bit OCD, but it completely clouds my thinking. Um, You know, when I've got things are not in the right place, when things are just all over the place, um, I'm just not as well functioning of a human being. Um, And so I think we need to spend a little bit more time on an ongoing basis to clear out the stuff that we don't need. Um, we, We actually really have so much stuff that we don't need.
1: Definitely. And I think it's worth noting, Chad, um, kind of the people that have influenced my thinking on this are two guys called Ryan Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn. And they, they run a site called theminimalist.com And so they talk a lot about this. And, and most of my thinking around this topic comes from them. So they've got a podcast, a blog and a bunch of books, which are all amazing. So for anyone who's struggling with this or wants to and like, read more about it or get a sense of what we're talking about, I think The Minimalist is the great place to start
0: amazing always good to throw a new resource out there maybe we need to do a bit of a review on some of the stuff um in future episodes so yeah keep your eyes posted for that let's move on to our next insert what's on your mind So we're back to what's on your mind. We have to encourage you to please send through questions. And if you can send through voice notes, we love hearing from you. Um, This is, you know, kind of two way communication. We don't want to just be throwing stuff at you. Uh, Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what's on your mind as well. And uh, we can kind of have a bit of banter about it on the podcast. So today's question comes through from Michaela. Um, We've got a voice note for this one. Thanks for your question.
1: Hey guys, thanks so much for a great podcast. This is a question from a fellow South African and is directed at Chad in particular, Um, what advice would you give fellow South Africans, young couples, young families who are considering immigrating themselves? I know you're an expat living in the UK and I'd love your thoughts and advice on what you'd sort of advise young people who are thinking of making that move. And with the current undertone of the political situation in South Africa, I'd love to know what you and Barry are thinking about, what your thoughts are on that. Um, Yeah, thanks so much, guys.
0: Awesome! Thanks so much for your question, Michaela. And this one, not a new topic on our podcast. We've spoken about this a, a couple of times in different contexts. And uh, I mean, I think the reason for it is because it is so topical at the moment. Um, and you know, a lot of youngsters looking to to move abroad. Um, so, in terms of advice, yeah, let's uh, let's certainly delve into that in the first place. I think uh, obviously the first thing is is pick a spot. Um, this you know seems obvious, but I think a lot of people just kind of go to the the, the place that's easiest to get into, and uh, then find them not enjoying being there. Um, so you know, look at your options um, and and have a real good look at options. Um, so look at the place that's easier to get into. Look for, look at those that are you know more appetising, but maybe a little bit more tricky. And, and kind of understand the nuances of of what it would take to to get there. Uh, talking about the UK specifically, just this past week, um, the details of the points-based immigration system um, have been released. It's a big document. Uh, I haven't had the time to go through it just yet, um, but that's certainly something to to look out for in the future um so yeah certainly have a look at the, the spot and be realistic about it um, I think a lot of the time we're of this view that you know the grass is always greener and uh, as like anything else in life there's always pros and cons um, I know a lot of South Africans aside who uh, come here and and really just hate it after the first couple of months and and fair enough it's not a, a perfect solution um but yeah have have a realistic think about that secondly I'd say certainly have a realistic think about um, how much cash you'll need um, to settle down. Now, I would certainly say, you know, whatever your field of profession is, have a have a chat to some recruiters. Um, get a get a good feel for how long it's going to take for you to get placed and make sure you have adequate buffer um, when you move over. Obviously, rent is one of the, the biggest expenses aside. If you know people who uh, are already sort of staying here, um, you know, maybe you can kind of spend a week at each person um, just, to, just to make it a little bit easier for that first move. Uh, I think that'll make a significant difference um and uh, and yeah i mean thirdly uh, is obviously just the, the the prep work so before you've actually decided okay cool now i'm gonna go um you kind of need to make that call of you know whether this is a, a short-term thing are you coming back in five years time um or is this a, a permanent move and why i'd say it's important to to do that thinking is in terms of all your stuff everything that you own are you gonna rent out a storage facility and, and hold that for when you do eventually decide to come back? Uh, do you have friends or family who have extra space that they can keep your stuff or do you need to kind of go out and, and sell everything? Um, and uh, you know that takes quite a lot of time. Um, we certainly got a, a good start um, fairly early on that. Uh, Gumtree is your friend. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, extra apps in South Africa that, that are, are well catered for that. And, uh, and and I certainly found spending a little bit of time um, actually listening things on those kinds of apps rather than just taking it to a cash converters um, is going to get you a lot more bang for your buck um, and yeah, as long as you're not sort of stressed for time um, you can actually get the right sort of value for your things um, and lastly I'd say on, on a financial uh, perspective um, you know how are you kind of going to move your money over so in South Africa uh, every South African is entitled to a annual discretionary allowance um, of one million rand Um, so if you fall underneath that bracket um, it's all good Um, but if it's above that um, you obviously have to request approval from the Reserve Bank um, and so there's obviously extra channels to take there also other things to note is obviously if this is a kind of permanent move over you've got to look at your your tax status Um, are you actually ordinarily resident in South Africa there's been some uh, changes in the tax system in South Africa to uh, enforce kind of double taxing really um, so certainly look into that and then in terms of your final tax return when you do actually move over one very important thing to note is if you move over you are deemed to have disposed of all your assets so even if you keep your assets in South Africa um, you deem to have disposed them so you should actually pay capital gains tax on them um, something to note and uh, you know certainly uh, get some advice on that. Um, those are some of the things that I would think about um, Barry in terms of the, the the undertones and, and all those uh, types of considerations that Michaela mentioned. Um, what do you have to add?
1: Yes, I think those are great tips, Chaz. So thank you for those. I think they're very practical and kind of talk to a lot of the practical things you have to think about when you're making this kind of move. I don't have much to add. I just want to add one point is that this kind of decision is often very emotional, right? So yeah. it's an emotional decision that really is quite taxing on people. And so I would just encourage you to think deeply and carefully about why you're making the move, right? It's, it's, I, th- I think I see some friends of mine make a mistake sometimes when they're running away from problems, right? Where they're running away from things and they think that just by going across the world to a different city that those problems inside their head are going to disappear, And that's not the case, right? Definitely. Unfortunately, when we we travel, we take ourselves with us, right? So you don't (laughs) get rid of the brain, you don't get rid of the mind. And so psychologically, it's important to do some actual deep internal work to understand why do you want to make this move and what are your reasons for it and in a non-emotional way. So to be able to sit down and write out, for example, so I think journaling is great for this, to write out examples of (coughs) why I'm making this move and why this particular city makes sense for me and what my game plan is. And that kind of psychological work is not the sexy stuff. It's very difficult to do. But I think it's very important for someone making this kind of move because what you don't want to do is, as you say, Chad, get across that side, realize the grass isn't greener there, yep. and then regret the move. So the more work you can do on yourself, understand why you're making the decision, the better chance you have of making a successful move and transitioning successfully into a new society.
0: Absolutely. I mean, talking about people who sort of run away, I know of people who uh, run away to a different country where, where, you know, English isn't even the main language um, with the thought that it's okay, I'll, I'll pick it up. Um, you know, like you said, there's, there's so many problems, I, I need to just run away with it. And uh, within a month or two months, um, those same people are, are back on the plane on the way back home. So, yeah, definitely that kind of thinking has to happen. Um, and, and like you said, journaling is such a great tool for that. Um, so, that brings us to yet another jump. Packed episode of across the pond i've really enjoyed this one barry
1: yeah it's been a really good one i felt really good about this one and so i hope you listeners enjoyed it as well please do let us know what you think we're always open to feedback good or bad so let us know what you're enjoying what you want to hear more of what you want to hear less of and uh, hopefully we can keep making this thing better week on week we're trying to get better as we go along and the more feedback we get from you guys the better we can make this show and the more valuable we can make it for you
0: absolutely and if you've got anyone who you think could benefit in tuning in to us on a weekly basis please do give a little referral um you know we really appreciate every little bit um and yeah like barry said we just kind of want to want to grow this so thanks for tuning in again this was episode 16 of across the Pond.
1: pond across the pond with barry and chad